Welcome to UW-Madison's Science Narratives. Short stories, big ideas. This is Friends with Benefits. Uh, So this was some work I did last summer um, with a robot called Baxter. I mean, the the application I'm primarily familiar with is manufacturing settings and having robots that um, kind of can take the place of someone on a manufacturing line somewhere. I'm Ali Sipe. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, um, and I study human-robot interaction. Is that good? Okay. (laughs) I mean, the personality differed between people a little bit, but they all felt that the robot was, um, I would say, coy or playful. You know, the robot would be fine, you know, doing its work, wouldn't need any assistance or breakdown or anything. Um, But then as soon as the, the person who was responsible for watching the robot maybe stepped out for a 15 minute coffee break, the robot would, of course, automatically break down. And so people just felt that the robot almost purposely picked times to break down. Um, And at one company, no one ever owned up to who did it, but uh, they had put a jester hat on the robot and they just thought it fit its personality, which um, is a very human-like thing to do, to attribute a personality to this robot and to go so far as to dress it up in a way that um, is congruent with that um, or that matches that personality. It's like you have two levels of response. And actually, this is a brain thing. So you have you have your declarative knowledge. You know, you have your you have your formal understanding, and then you have your emotions, and these are separate. So that's what we see. So we see people have intellectual knowledge that the robot is a robot. They know that it's programmed. They know that it's a recorded voice. They know all of that, but still you have this emotional reaction to it like a human. So they know if it breaks down in the middle of a task or if it overheats, they don't think, oh, we need to call a doctor. You know, people understand that's a robot, but despite knowing it, you still are feeling some human connection to it. And that's what I think was so unexpected for me. Even among humans, friendship is sometimes less an emotional response and more a sense of familiarity. As I experience certain sensory input patterns, my mental pathways become accustomed to them. The input is eventually anticipated. What I do is, what I'd like to do, or what my mission is, uh, is to integrate those social abilities um, into the physical uh, abilities that robots have. Um, So enable robots to have the social skills and understanding um, to act and navigate in the human world. Okay, I'm, I'm fully wired in. I think that we've less been studying what makes people work, but more what is going on in what people do that we can then make use of in computer systems. So um, I am Michael Gleischer. I am a professor of computer sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So it's less that here is something that people can do that's wrong. It's more, here are things that people do that if a machine doesn't do it, then we have a problem. Sorry, I blew a fuse, sir. 
what can you expect from wiring as old as mine? And when you look at human behavior, human activities, human world, we have these sort of discrete activities that actually follow very specific norms, right? So you can think about a conversation as one activity, one template that has particular norms. We know how turn-taking works. Uh, we know how asking a question works. Um, we know how back-channeling to express that you're agreeing with a statement works. Uh, we have all these norms that we really master throughout our development and life. Um, and throughout our days, our lives, we, we switch between these different activities or templates. So just one behavior, looking at one behavior, modeling that, building the mechanism to engage in that behavior is not sufficient because uh, we, we, we are very multimodal um, communicators. Um, so you need to look at gaze and how gaze aligns with your speech and that Temporal alignment is really important, and gestures come in, uh, especially in things like storytelling, gestures are extremely important. So we need to have people kind of in the background who are programming these robots to interact in all these different scenarios. The kinds of people who program robots are really good at programming, but really bad typically at understanding uh, how can you take a, a typical human interaction and program it into a robot so it's still natural when that robot interacts with the human. So the goal with these behavioral templates is to give these programmers and engineers kind of a, a starting point. Um, some basic building blocks or ideas of what are common things uh, that we want robots to be able to do. So maybe give directions to a human, give instructions to a human, answer questions from a human. Uh, they can just use these templates and then produce robots that are going to be a lot better at interacting with humans than if they were to just do it from scratch. I want to be the robot to assist and support the people in more places and more various occasions. In my previous work in Velgate's lab, um, we studied five um, that we found kind of in prior human-robot interaction research to be pretty common scenarios that people envisioned robots um, existing Yeah, we have, we have a list. It's not exhaustive. Uh, we've, we've so far looked at um, the order of about five activities. We've looked at storytelling, conversation, instruction, collaboration, interview, um, that are sort of sufficiently different from each other. And for example, the uh, Gaze Aversion project was in an interview setting. It, you know, how do I actually use my gaze effectively in order to facilitate our interaction in this scenario? So in, in storytelling, what, what we have seen is uh, speech, gaze, and gestures are sort of the really key elements. But those are just sort of behaviors. Uh, you also have to think about the interaction flow. You know, if you're telling a story to one person versus multiple people versus a larger audience, that actually changes how you use these behaviors. I can recognize your face. When I talk with you, I keep staring in your eyes. In storytelling, you want to captivate people, potentially persuade them. Um, you want to you paint a picture, right? Good storytellers are the ones that convey that most effectively. Um, so again, 
templates become or activities become really important because you have very specific goals associated with those activities. If you're talking to one person, if you're presenting a story to one person, the way that you direct your gaze at that person versus a large, larger audience looks very different. Um, how do you look at them, away from them? When I want to emphasize something, I might build eye contact and lean over toward you, use my right. gesture. So in gestures, for example, there's something called an iconic gesture. If I'm talking about a physical shape, I might be demonstrating that shape with my, with my arms. Or I might be using uh, metaphoric gestures. For example, I might be talking about the past and I might move my arm sort of uh, you know, backward to express that I'm talking about the past. These behaviors come together and interact with the content of the story. Right, so it's a, it, part of the complexity comes from not just that you're just gesturing, but that that gesture has a semantic meaning. And one of the goals that we have in creating a storytelling robot is to understand what it is that effective storytellers use. How do they use it? How, does, how is a pause used by an effective storyteller so I can get a robot to actually do that or be as, as an effective storyteller? If you have a cleaning robot, you want it to clean as effectively as possible. Just cleaning the rug, ma'am. If you have a storytelling robot, you want the robot to be really good at storytelling. And drama is part of what is effective storytelling, right? Good storytellers are the ones that convey that most effectively. Um, and good storytelling robots have to be also good at doing that. We are guided by the kinds of activities involved in human interactions. Storytelling is, is an activity that is the basis for many other activities. In conversations, you engage in a little bit of storytelling. You know, I'm having a conversation with you, let me tell you what happened this morning. Same thing in a, think about an instructional scenario or a, or a lecture scenario. You know, your professor is telling you a story actually at the end of the day. It may not require drama, but it will require the same kinds of behaviors, same kinds of attention and captivating your audience. And I think the best teachers, best professors are also the best storytellers. And uh, they're the ones who captivate the students the most. So it's such a core skill, so, such a core communicative activity that we engage in that we predict uh, or we hypothesize that it will be important uh, in the application that people will build. Try six one two. He seems to have an eight one eight. Can you feel it? Four eight one four. Uh, avoid the seven one four and the two three three six. All right. But right now we're more interested. You know, we're sort of focused on three, the three, six, four, understanding the the communication aspect uh, of it. The Building collaborative systems, I think, is the, the goal of where it goes. That now that I understand how machines and people can communicate better, now I can start really trying to build things that really solve problems. But I think as the technology gets better, we can produce these more human-like interactions with robots um, and will hopefully be more indicative of of what they would encounter in a human-human conversation. But I don't know, maybe maybe we will all kind of learn at some point that if we need to interact with this robot, our gaze cues better be on point and we better be looking at the right spot at the right time kind of thing. In time, it, I see robots as working with people. 
that there's a job and parts of it are the robot does and parts of it the people do. So many people have tried to make a robot that's like a human. And I don't think it's possible to make a robot that will fully represent the intricacy and timing of human behavior. But I don't think we have to because humans will come the other 50%. I think we're going to associate robots more with the, with the roles they play in our environment and lives rather than these images that we have in our minds that mostly come from media or literature that we've, we've consumed. Um, you know, I'll let the robot do that, for example, right? I don't know what that is. I don't know what the function is. But we're probably going to think of them as, oh, my robot is the thing that does X. And I think that's a good thing. That's a good development because that means that, that, that robots have been successful in doing those things. And, and people are comfortable in uh, thinking about allocating that work to the robot. And so that's sort of the change that I can, I can think of. If someone asked, you know, what would computers be doing in 20 years, 20 years ago, we wouldn't be able to predict. And we wouldn't be able to predict what form it was going to be in, right? The most of computation is now in mobile devices. So think about your phone or smartphone. It has uh, connectivity to the internet, right? So it can retrieve data, it can send data. Um, it has sensors on it. Uh, it can make sense of some of its interactions with you. Think about all these elements that that make it work. When they created the iPhone or the Android platform, they didn't say, here are the apps that will be working on this. They said, we don't know what the apps will be, but here's a basic set you can start with. Um, but here are the functionalities of these platforms and let people be creative. I was telling my colleague the other day that my first smartphone was and is still to date the best purchase I've made. The product that has most fundamentally changed, uh, changed my life. So if, if robots are gonna be like that, we have a lot of work to do. This podcast was developed by Do It Academic Technology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Edited by Mark Neufeld and Don Fleshman with original music by Yoon Hong. Special thanks to Bill Gay Mutlu, Lynn Turkstra, Sean Andrist, Ali Sape, and Michael Gleischer. Produced for UW Science Narratives, an initiative of the Division of Continuing Studies.